Welcome to the groundbreaking news program that delves into the heart of Mormonism, your weekly window into the unique intersection of news, history, and culture that resonate with the tapestry of Mormonism. So whether you are tuning in from the heart of Utah or joining us from around the world, your favorite news program starts now, where news meets insights and the stories of our faith unfold. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Mormon Newscast. I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Radio Free Mormon and Rebecca Biblioteca. How are the two of you tonight? Fabulous. And I'm great, too. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So we've got a, a quite a few great stories to go over tonight. I'll put up on the screen here. Uh, let's see. So top stories we're going to cover. Radio Free Mormon is going to go first and talk to us about uh, some recent news coming out of the Widow's Might report, uh, which... Uh, talks about how missionary growth, uh, male missionary service has gone down, but the church talks about its missionaries uh, having an increased number. And so let's turn some time over to you, RFM, and have you share that story with us first. Well, thank you. When I said I was feeling great, actually by great, I meant terrified. Because I'm <laughs> going to be talking about statistics tonight, folks. And you know how dangerous that can be. But I've been working on this for several days, talking with people who know what they're talking about, and they have managed to dumb it down enough to where I think that I can grasp it and hopefully convey it. This is the Widow's Might Report, which all of you are probably familiar with. It's a consortium of professionals who work together to look at church statistics and see if by using standardized accounting type procedures, they can come up with uh, reasonable approximations of the numbers that the church doesn't want us to know. And the one that came out this past week was just a few days ago, and it actually just got updated this morning, is a one-page document having to do with the number of serving young male missionaries in the church, what we would call the elders. And there's a uh, the address, the, um, uh, the widowsmightreport.wordpress.com. If you go there, you can find the one backslash missionaries, backslash, and that'll take you right to this particular report. There it is. Now, if you can take us off the screen, Bill, I'll talk about this so we can see it a little bit better. Thank you. So the title is LDS missionary numbers indicate a declining activity rate. You did that on purpose, didn't you? <laughs> okay. So we examined reported numbers of LDS missionaries since 1999. And there's an asterisk and it takes it down to the small print at the bottom. And the reported numbers that have been analyzed by the widow's might, it's important to note, they don't have any insider information. It's not any anonymous sources coming to them on the street corner, you know, and, and whispering in their ear. These are all church sources that have been published in church periodicals over the years. And so there's a number of them, and you can actually click the hyperlinks and open them up when you're looking at the actual document on the webpage. And I went and I did that as part of my preparation. So we examined reported numbers of LDS missionaries since 1999, all from those church sources. A higher percentage of current missionaries are female or sister missionaries today. Looking only at male or elder missionaries, and that's important to understand, this is only looking at the elders or the young male missionaries in the church. The service rate is about 36% lower today than in 1999, which is 25 years ago. A long-term decline in member activity is a likely root cause. 
And I'm going to go back to this in a second because it helps me to understand this by breaking it down. So the church was about $10 million. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm thinking like a Mormon now. 10 million members back in 1999 when it started. As of current time, they're reporting 17 million members. So in the time period of this survey, it's gone from about 10 million to about 17 million members, which is an increase of about 60% in the membership. If, let me back up from that, every cohort within the church would be expected to increase at approximately the same rate as the overall membership, including young men. So if you've got a certain number of young men in the church in 1999, when there's 10 million members, you would expect that to increase by the time it's 17 million today. And you'd expect it to increase in the same proportion as the overall membership is increasing. So you would expect a number of young men 25 years ago to have increased 60%, even as the total membership of the church has increased 60% over that time period. Is that much clear enough? Yeah. Okay. That's not what they're finding. They're not even finding it's staying even percentage-wise with the church. In fact, if you look at it, it's gone down around 36% over these 25 years, the young men who are opting to go on missions. Now, the report says a long-term decline in member activity is a likely root cause because they can't say exactly why it's happening. All they can do is the statistics and show that it is happening. Other possible factors impacting male service rates include reduced social pressure slash stigma about not going on a mission. When I went on my mission back in 1979, there was a lot of pressure on young men to go on a mission. And as far as I know, uh, it hasn't let up that much. But I think the, the, the issue that's going on is that the more young men who don't go on a mission, the more uh, the easier it is for other young men to choose to not go on a mission as well. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one possible factor. Another is higher rates of early return for the missionaries. More rigorous mental health screening. In other words, trying to keep people who would go out on missions and then return early because of mental health problems off their missions altogether by screening for mental health. And higher standards for mission calls, the raising of the bar that happened back in 2000 and always oh, around 2014. So if you look at these graphs here at the bottom, the one on the left has the black line. That's the elders. No, excuse me. That's the total. That was one of the changes that was added this morning. They added the total amount of membership in the black line. The blue line right below that is the number of elders who are serving. Below that in the light blue line is the number of sisters serving, or I should say the percentage of sisters serving, because it is a percentage. And the brown line at the bottom, dragging along there, is the senior couple line. So if they take the elder line by itself, then they make a graph for it on the right. So that is only the elder line. And how many percentage-wise compared to members of the church are going on a mission? Now you'll note <clears throat> that in order to make this graph, they really had to zoom in on it. We're talking between 
0.2% of all members and 0.4% of all members. And it started in 1999 up here at 0.4% of all members. And then it went through some permutations, and we'll talk about those here in a second and why those happen. And it had dropped down to 0.2% of all members in 2021 or 2020, and then it has bumped up again. Let me go ahead and tell you why those are. I, I made separate slides for it. They're coming up, but let's do it while we have the graph on the screen. We see it going down. There's 2002. That was 2002, the raising the bar, excuse me. So at the 2002, we see a slight dip, a stronger dip in the percentage of missionaries serving. It continues along. And then 2012, what happened then? We know that they lowered the missionary age for the young men and the young women. And then there was a sharp upswing, but it wasn't an upswing enough to even get us back to 1999 levels. But there's definitely a spike there, and that's what it caused. And over the next two years, all those new missionaries who responded to that, they worked their way through the system over two years that they're serving their mission. They exit the mission, and now we see that it goes back to the way it was before. So then it goes down, and then it really drops, and that's COVID right there. That significant drop is COVID at the far right side, right before the end of the graph. And now it's popping up a little bit. And uh, the thought by the widow's might is that what that represents, that increase, that second spike, is a temporary second spike that is being caused by the missionaries who are going on their missions, who chose to defer going on their missions during COVID. So, and that's about 20% of the total missionary force. So now there's a 20% addition. That's going to pop up. Their belief is that once that two years goes by, it'll do the same thing as happened with the increase in 2012. That'll work its way out and the downward trend will continue. If you look really close, sorry, Arthur. and if you could put the whole screen on, I'm sorry, Bill. There is a very faint dotted line. You can see it easier on the original. Thank you, Bill, for using your cursor to point it out. That is the trend line. And the trend line is made in such a way, it's done by computer, such that there's an equal amount of numbers below the line as above the line. The trend line is obviously going down. And that trend line indicates that, as we said at the outset, it appears that young men serving missions as a percentage of total church membership is down 36% over 25 years. If you'll go to your next um, slide, let's see if I've covered these. Yeah, I talked about the 2012 jump, the 2021 COVID spike, accounting for the two upward spikes. Yep. And number of sister missionaries has ballooned. Today, now this is from one of the articles that they cited, it was 2018. It was Deseret News, all these are church sources. As of 2018, there were about 67,000 full-time missionaries serving worldwide in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Of those, about 30% are sisters, and that's more than 20,000. So in other words, if you took 20,000, it's probably maybe 21,000, but we use the round number of 20,000, against the 67,000 full-time missionaries, 
that would actually, if you subtracted the sisters, that would be closer to 47,000 missionaries if we're just talking about the elders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, this is a huge difference from when I went on my mission in 79. When you might have 5% of the total missionaries being sister missionaries, tops, at least based upon my experience and being at the MTC and uh, on my mission, sure, we had sister missionaries, but maybe 5% of the missionaries. That has gone up to 30% as of 2018. And for purposes of this article, they're continuing to use that idea of 30% being sister missionaries in order to get a fix on the elders, the young men missionaries. And the reason this has been a bit difficult for them is be, uh, widow's might to put this together, although they've done a phenomenal job, is because the church has now apparently started lumping different groups of missionaries together without distinguishing which are the sister missionaries and which are the elders in an apparent effort to cloud this very issue that they are revealing through purposes of this report. I got a couple questions or and comments, I think, RFM. So the first one is that back when the missionary age was lowered for a year for both the males and the females, the elders and the sisters, there was all this excitement in the church because the numbers had gotten up to like 70-something thousand, and Elder Holland had essentially prophesied that we'd get to 100,000 missionaries, and we never did because... It Can I interrupt like, you right there, Bill? Yeah, please. That was, that was another thing that was surprising me to me when, as I was talking with Widow's Might about this. They've got 70,000 now is what they're claiming. That is not the highest it's ever been. It was actually up around 80,000 at that spike. Right, 79. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the church was all excited because the numbers were so high. But if you remember, you and I, in an early episode of Mormonism Live, we covered this data. And what it was, was there was overlap. There were the kids who had gone out at the normal missionary age prior to the change. So you have this segment of 19, 20, 21 year old males, and you had uh, 20, you know, 21, 22, 23, 24 year old females. And then suddenly the church lowers the age and creates some excitement. And this whole new group of missionaries come out that would have gone out perhaps most likely, at least most of them a year or two later, but now they're out at the same time as the group from the older age. Mm -hmm. Hence, you get sort of this false ballooning of the numbers. And at the time when Elder Holland said that, I had spoken up, you and I did an episode on it where we said those numbers are not going to stay. Elder Holland is going to turn out to be wrong. Now, Bill, I had interrupted you, and I don't know if I interrupted you when you were saying what Elder Holland had said. So go ahead and say Yeah, that. he prophesied, well, he said that they expected the missionary numbers to get to 100,000. Right. And I immediately recognize that soon as one of these two groups falls off and now the new status quo is everyone, it would go back down. And it did. And then in the last couple of years, I've made mention that the way that we would know the church was shrinking is if the missionaries went down. And all of a sudden, the church is talking about those numbers being as high as they've been in a long time, right? Now we're back up to 72,000. But this is like you pointed out in the beginning. I just want the audience to be clear. This is another false ballooning that because of COVID, there are two different groups of missionaries out right now because there were almost, there was a lot less of normal missionaries out during the COVID scare. And so uh, once this straightens out, like you said, in two more years, 
it's going to go back down, whatever it is, 10%, 15%, 20%, and we'll probably end up with missionaries back in the 50,000, 55,000 range. It, it certainly isn't this magnificent growth that the church has been testifying of recently. It's rather that they created a situation, or at least COVID did, where two different segments of missionaries that would have been out at different times are happening to serve at the exact same moment. Now, Bill, thank you for explaining that so well. You can understand that. You could see that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could see it because statistics are not my things, but anybody could see that that was going to happen, that this spike could not would not continue because you're having twice the number of missionaries out at the same time. That pig is going to work its way through the python, right? And eventually you'll go back to where it was before because you'll, you won't have this doubling up, which you have for a couple of years. But now it seems like they're doing the same thing. There's a brief artificial spike caused by circumstances. And now they're once again saying it's going to go to the moon. It seems as though while I could see really quickly what was happening it seems like everyone at the church doesn't have a clue that this is a false inflation of the numbers. They seem to see it as a miraculous growth of the church, but that's not what it actually is. And, and on their behalf and in their defense of the leadership of the church, and they've got lots of experts and a lot of statisticians and lots of lawyers, okay? They've got to know. They've got to know. So I will just uh, say that they are presenting as if this is not a temporary spike, just as they presented back in, what was it, 2012 when they lowered the missionary age. And, Can I make a comment about yeah. the lumping together? Yeah. So I believe they know too, because they're working really hard to make it look like this is not what's happening. Mm. So not only do you have lumping the sisters and the elders together, you know, so you have no idea which is which. Also, recently, if you remember an article that service missionaries now are two, where I believe they, there used to be a distinction between the two groups. They are now considered regular missionaries. They report to mission presidents. They attend mission conferences, even though they're living at home and they're serving in a service mission capacity. So there are a lot of service missionaries because they don't have to serve for two years. You know, they have, they can pretty much choose how long they serve. So they're in and out. There's lots of them. I believe that that also inflates the numbers because you just say missionaries in general. Mm -hmm. and so I think all of this um, plays together to make it look like there's a huge number. And I think they're doing it on purpose because they know the number is not what it appears. That's when a good you, point. And then they're adding yeah. in service missionaries. You've got yeah. Elder Pearson out there asking senior yes. couples to serve not just yes. one, but two missions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I looked at the numbers from like 2020 to 2021, from 2021 to 2022, there was significant decline. And as the widow's might is pointing out, at least with the elders, that decline is real. And while the church has given sisters a more prominent role, more visibility, more chances for leadership. So we all would sort of expect that there would be more sisters that would see a mission as a growth opportunity and that that segment of the LDS population would in greater numbers go out and serve. But it seems as though once this uh, bubble burst, we're going to be back to uh, what I think is going to be a year over year slow decline in the number of missionaries serving. In two more years, if indeed that is correct, uh, this 
temporary spike at the very end of things, even taking that into account, it's 36% down over 25 years. Once it goes back to where it was before, if indeed it does that, then it will be closer to 50% down. Yeah, 50% less elders serving as a percentage of the church than yes. in 1999. Right. I can solve this. I, I can tell them what to do. I can tell them how to get more missionaries out who are elders. What is the difference between a sister missionary and a an elder? Six Priestess. months. Oh. Six months. I'm telling you, if they were to change it back to 18 months, two years is so long. In the scheme of things today, the things that you miss, you know, jobs, school, 18 months. And, and I've been around a lot of sister missionaries as they decide to serve, you know, um, friends and, and their daughters. And they're all kind of like, it's 18 months. You know what I mean? It's just very doable. Mm -hmm. I feel like if they were to make missions and, and I, of course, was old enough at that era where the men did go for 18 months. Yes. And I just feel like if they made it to 18 months, I feel like they would see a surge of, of more elders. Well, you might be right, Rebecca, but you remember as well as I do back in the 1980s when they did make it for 18 months for a period of time, the hope by leadership was, just as you're saying, that by decreasing the amount of time, they would up the number of missionaries applying. And apparently, the missionaries did not increase the rate of applying, and so they just made it two years again. And just a note, the widow's might is commenting in, uh, clarification on service missionaries, the numbers reported here are only full-time missionaries. Service okay. missionaries are not full-time to our knowledge. See, they're watching. Thank you. I'm so glad they're watching. I feel like I'm not completely without a net here. An, uh, a, another couple of ways of looking at this, though, is this. If the number of missionaries, okay, no, the number of missionaries as a number, not a percentage, the number of male, elder, full-time proselytizing missionaries, okay, has actually kind of remained constant for the last 25 years. So it's the number remaining constant against the backdrop of a church that's gone up 60% in membership that accounts for the decrease of 36%. And in fact, in fact, the church is boasting about 70,000 missionaries now. If the number of missionaries, male missionaries, elders from 1999 had increased in proportion to the growth rate of the church. In other words, if you added 60% to that total. I have an echo. Yeah, and I'm not hearing it, just so you know. So uh, there was a report, uh, an interior report, that there was an echo for Rebecca. I was just saying I, I was not hearing an echo from her. Okay, but if you took that, and if the number of male missionaries had increased in proportion to the growth of the membership of the church overall, Today, there would be just about 70,000 male elder missionaries alone, not including any other kind of missionary. That's yeah. how drastic it is. And I, you know, it is interesting in a church that claims year over year growth of its total membership, again, what its activity rates are, none of us are, know, and we're all sort of guessing at that. But in a church that year over year has claimed growth since 1999, the number of male missionaries, elders serving percentage-wise has gone down, which sort of indicates a lesser degree of loyalty, faithfulness, and activity from those males when the opportunity to serve comes. Yes, and even those other um, elements that may be accounting for some of this decrease over time, 
I don't think there's any way that they account for all of it or even a majority of it. But once again, Widows Might, trying to be as accurate as possible, lists those in its document, in its report, as possible reasons that could account for some of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's another... And that's what I was just saying, the shocking statistic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then let's see here is that. Okay. I think that's it, my friend. Back to you, Bill. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, excited uh, excited to see. I mean this too. I'm excited to see over the next few years what this all looks like. Because if, if I'm right and the church is in some sort of decline, active members, and uh, this balloon pops and now this double layer of missionaries is gone, we're back to 55,000, then we're back to 52,000. Suddenly we got... 48,000 missionaries, 44,000 missionaries. The church is not going to be able to walk away from the response, which is that's a great indicator of whether the church in vibrancy is growing or in decline. The church is going to have to come up with new ways to cook the books. Yeah, and it's done plenty of those. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, thank you for reaching out to Widow's Might. Thank you for bringing that data to us, RFM. Yes, and thank you to the great people at Widow's Might. Keep up the good work. Sweet. And uh, we'll turn some time over here to a clip I uh, created uh, having to do with Mormon trad wives on TikTok. Uh, this is quite the, quite the thing going on. So uh, we'll play the, play the clip here. Good evening. I'm Bill Real. And tonight we delve into the world of TikTok and traditional Mormon wives known as trad wives where a group of Mormon women are gaining attention for their content that revolves around the ideals of an at-home mother. Often imploring Bible values of a submissive wife, the woman stays at home to cook the meals, homeschool the children, bake the homemade bread and desserts, and ensure every need of their husband is taken care of, all the while dressed to the hilt and making it all look so easy. But is it? These videos go viral every day, mostly being watched by men who fantasize about having their very own trad wife. And many of these trad wives are, in fact, Mormon women. An article by Katie Couric Media noted why Mormon women seem most set up to succeed as TikTok trad wives. Quote, the ideal Mormon woman shows her connection to God in four critical ways. The first three are objectives. She must maintain appearances, be obedient to her husband, and dedicate her life to the well-being of her family. The fourth form of worship is not an objective, but the means by which she accomplishes anything else. She must make it all look easy. It's not enough for a good Mormon woman to just do her job. She also has to make the job look effortless. At every moment, along the way. Unlike tasks that pile up on a Mormon housewife's plate, like freshly laundered underwear, carrying out the thankless labor of childcare, or loading the dishwasher at the end of the night, the work embodying perfection is a chore that never ends. For most Mormon women, it's the performance of a lifetime, unquote. But as a man, I can only imagine how exhausting this life could be. On TikTok, these Mormon women share glimpses into their lives portraying the pursuit of perfection in their daily routines. 
as these women navigate the delicate balance between tradition and modern life, the toll that these expectations might take on their mental health seems like a real concern. Another article noted, the idea that a woman's place is always in the home is out of touch for everyone except a small cadre of wealthy and overwhelmingly white elites. Former trad wives as well, as mental health experts on TikTok, note that the pressure to maintain appearances and embody perfection while juggling numerous responsibilities can lead to mental health challenges such as depression, burnout, and overwhelming stress and anxiety. And such seems at risk of being compounded in a religion that ensures its female members that they have the primary responsibility for the care of the children, the primary caretaker of the home, and responsible to keep the husband happy while also submitting to him as the one who presides. One need not wonder, with expectations of perfection so high and the never-ending workload that is never done, why Utah ranks at or near the top for depression and mental illness. Yeah, so I wanted to get your thoughts, but as I've followed this story when it came out a week ago, and I've seen some of these clips, and when I, I go on TikTok, you'll see some of this stuff. And some of these folks, I mean, uh, these females, they are dressed in way nicer outfits than anything me or my wife have in our wardrobe. Meanwhile, they're baking bread and cleaning the house, hanging out with the children. Um, there's a sort of pretending, it looks like to me, and I know that in the Mormon world, it is such a such a difficult thing um, to pretend over a long period of time. Like at some point, that catches up with you. Your thought, you two, on trad wives, Mormon trad wives, that is. I want to hear what Rebecca has to say about it. I'll just note that as you were talking about it, I thought that I better move her from the bottom position up to one that's at least equal with you. Like too that. little, too late. And I'm sorry if I have an echo, everybody. That's why I'm kind of muting all the time. So I apologize. Does it sound echoey now? Oh. Sorry, that guys. Look like I'm a regular background. No, I'm at Mormon Mormonish Studios North. And so I'm on an unfamiliar computer, camera, and mic. And so we're all doing the best we can. So I'm sorry Is that about studio that. Studio fist in your face? That's exactly. Anyway, so yes, this has been an interesting phenomenon for a long time. And it's not just Mormons, it's the Christian community too, where just this ideal, it's just unattainable. And I do, I pulled this book out of storage. I don't know how many of you know what this is. It's called Fascinating Womanhood. This book was given to everyone in the church back in the day. I think this is actually a first edition, 1963. And it basically just espouses all these values, um, the values you could find in the proclamation to the family. You just have to completely serve your man is basically what it's all about. And, and it's kind of the order that God has put there for you. And so as long as you follow this, you're going to be happy. But everything that you detailed, Bill, is more likely to, to be the result. But these TikToks, it's interesting. I try to picture who watches them. I know I do have some high school friends who, you know, were more the career woman type, not LDS. They like things like this because it's such a different lifestyle, right? They can't even imagine that this is reality. Those of us that live in Utah, we understand that maybe it's something that we're supposed to aspire to, but it certainly doesn't reflect the reality of myself, of course, and a lot of people I know. So I don't know. What do you think, RFM? Have you watched very many of these or? None. None? <laughs> I was not aware of this phenomenon at all until Bill brought it up. Now. 
they're they're getting way more views on TikTok than anything oh. the three of us are doing. Yeah. Uh, Hang it's on, in I'm the putting mi- on a dress and baking some bread. Yeah, it's in the millions. You <laughs> ought to. <laughs> I will say, I mean, sort of at the end of that video, Utah really does rank at or near the top in all of those categories of depression, anxiety, uh, depression who on depression meds, issues with uh, mental health. So there is some degree, you know, Mormonism absolutely asks a lot out of its members and it requires the women to sort of take a back seat to the husbands. And I think that that, uh, that combination of expectations over how much you're allowed to participate, uh, I think really does cause some, some real ill and uh, negative health effects. Yeah, this is such an old idea and I should say an old ideal, Right. We all know about the 50s or actually early 60s, late 50s, leave it to Beaver and June Cleaver. Right. And how she's always got her nice dress on. She's cooking the dinner. She's doing all the stuff at home. It's easy. It's totally easy because, you know, after a few minutes, somebody says cut and then you can be yourself again. And in a similar way, you know, I don't want to judge. I'm just going to make the obvious observation that it's easier to look like this and do this for a 60 second or three-minute TikTok than it is to do it 24-7. And maybe some of them do it that way as well. But I am just astounded at, at that they're doing it and astounded at the popularity. And interesting that you said it's mostly men watching and uh, you know wishing that they had a wife like this. I do know a Frank Sinatra song, which was moderately popular back in the 60s, I think it was. And I'm not going to sing it for you, okay? Mainly because I can't remember it well enough. But... It is a song that's being sung to a young married lady and advising her that she needs to make sure that she looks really good and uh, like a million bucks when her husband gets home from work and run to greet him and have a great dinner in the oven. And also reminds her that every day her husband's going to the office where there's other young women and that it's a competition. And if you don't hold up your end of this bargain, that society has made for you, then you may lose your husband to one of those girls at the office. So not all Frank Sinatra songs age as well as others. No, you're absolutely right. And that is what this book talks about. You should always have full makeup and look amazing when your husband comes home. You should never bother him about anything that happened with you and the children during the day. He needs to rest. He's had a hard day himself. You should always have dinner ready. You know, you should never talk to him about real things because that's your world. You need to take care of it. So it's very damaging. A lot of the things that are in this book. Yes. Tell us about the onion. It's true. This is the one thing I did learn from this. And this works, actually. Yes, I've read the entire book. So um, if your husband is on his way home from work and you have not had time to make dinner, right, and he expects dinner to be ready, you put an onion in the oven and you turn the oven on. So it smells good. It smells like something's happening and it can buy you, the book says, like an hour and a half as you just say, it's all right, honey. It's going to be ready in a minute, right? I say, why don't you just go out to Wendy's or something? But then again, I'm a different kind of a person. You're not <laughs> I know a this trad was wife, the idea. Huh? <laughs> but do you know what? A lot of people want to be a trad wife. And do you know why? It takes a certain level of affluence to be able to be a trad wife. Do you know what I mean? Most people yeah. I knew in my circles, their husband worked. They may have stayed home with kids, but they also had like a part-time job at home. You know, like I used to do copy editing or things like that. They were working. Everybody was trying. You were pulling your weight together. I don't know too many people that fell into the category of trad wife where you, you're not concerned about income and you are doing all these other things, dressing, 
making bread, all of that. So I don't know, but there sure is pressure, especially in Utah in the Mormon community, because you do go to church every Sunday and you do see lifestyles that you feel, you know, might not be your own and it can cause you to feel not great. That's all I'll say about that. I think we need to take this trad wives and make it into a, a noun of something, call it trad wifery. Trad yeah. wifery. I like that. It yeah. also takes a lot of affluence to be a Stepford wife, and they might mm -hmm. be sort of one in the same. Yeah. Wow. Stepford yeah. wifery. Yeah. What, Rebecca, now let's go to uh, the story you've got for us today. I All right. Bird, by let's the way. do it. <laughs> okay. I hope I know I cut too much. All right. So we're going to talk about cell phone data and what it tells us about the real number of Mormons attending church every Sunday. And this was a study uh, that came out about seven months ago, but it was just picked up by Jana Reese in the Salt Lake Tribune. And the title is, How Many Mormons Are Actually in Church Every Week in the U.S.? And it's really fascinating how they were able to sort of figure this out. Let's go to our next slide. Um, so basically, self-reporting by Mormons, this is great. This means that surveys ask Mormons, how often do you go to church? So Pew Research, more than three-fourths of U.S. members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints describe themselves as attending church at least once a week. So over 75% say, of course I go to church every week. Of course I do, right? Self-reporting, keep in mind. I know, Arf, I'm shaking his head. <laughs> Did you read my notes? You must have read my notes. Um, so the B.H. Robert Foundation, 71% of Mormons who live in LDS areas of the U.S. attend church weekly, and 65% who live outside of the United States attend, or the geographic strongholds of Mormonism, I guess, the Morador Corridor, um, attend weekly. So again, self-reporting. Most of them say I'm there every week. And Jana Reese, of course, did her own study with her book, um, The Next Mormons. And in her study, self-reporting, again, 74% of members of the church said that they, they do attend weekly. This is back in 2016. So Mormons are saying, of course, we're there. We're supposed to be there. We have to be there. We are there. But we're about to find out that may not necessarily be true if we move on here. So this is really interesting um, research that somebody named Devin Pope has done. And um, he's right. It's, it's a journal article that's going to come out um, called Religious Worship Attendance in America, Evidence from Cell Phone Data. And he actually collected data on many, many denominations. But of course, he himself is active Latter-day Saint. And so he kind of focused on that. So he tracked the cell phones of 2.1 million Americans over nearly a year. This is from April of 2019 to the pre-pandemic month of February 2020. Now, this is an observation. All this is pre-pandemic. So I feel that anything we learn from this, we can absolutely <laughs> extrapolate that the numbers are far worse than this because this is post-COVID. Um, Pope says that smartphones that use location services, such as weather apps or Google Maps, allow our phones to track over the whereabouts. And this information is pinged to cell phone towers every few minutes. So starting more than, since more than 90% of Americans have a smartphone, there's a startling amount of information available about where we are and what we are doing. So basically they can track your cell phone. If you're sitting in the pews in a Mormon building, they can tell how many of you are there and how often you are there and where else you go. So his findings are measuring the religious attendance of different groups like Protestants, Catholics, Muslims, Jews, and even Buddhists. So if we go on, we'll get into specifics here. So what can we learn from the L about the LDS from all this data? So as you probably guessed, RFM was shaking his head, 
Far fewer Latter-day Saints attend church weekly than say they attend. And he even gave a weekly attendance sort of latitude, like illness, travel, circumstances where you might not be there. He's, his criteria was if you attend at least 36 weeks of the year through his study, he's going to call you a, a full-time attender if you attend 36 weeks of the year. So even with that extra leeway, there's only about a third as many LDS weekly attenders. That's 0.29% of the United States population as the number who claim to be LDS weekly attenders in the surveys, which would be 0.87%. And I understand that. If people said to me, do you go to church every Sunday? I'd say, yeah, of course I do. Because you're not really thinking it through, right? How often are you home? The kids are sick, or you might have to go to another ward, or you're there late. You know, I can understand why people may actually think that they do go all the time when they don't. Let's go to the next slide. So this is interesting, and I need to scoot my graph over there a little bit. But compared to the U.S. population, at tens at least once a month, 21% of people, okay? So Latter-day Saints, 39. So they are higher as far as attendance than the average other person that goes to another church. At tens at least once a week, 5% of the U.S. population. And Latter-day Saints, 15%. So it's higher than other denominations, but still 15%. What do you guys think about that number? Uh, I think it's amazing that we've reached a point in Mormon history where we're cheering the number 15. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it is lower than I would have expected it to be. I would have said the activity rate of those who attend essentially weekly would be significantly higher than 15. But yeah, I'm a little surprised. Yeah. And so this basically is pretty two -thirds I'm sorry. Yeah. So basically two thirds of the respondents were lying. Well, I, I, I want to say they weren't lying. I want to say they were hopeful that in their mind, they thought I do go every week. And then if they really broke it down, they didn't, but you hopeful? know what I mean? Hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> like thinking, I'm sure I was there. Wasn't I? How much hmm. do you weigh? Well, I'm actually 260, but I'm <laughs> hoping to get down to 210. <laughs> So I'll just say two ten. That's a reality. Yeah, hopeful lying. They're not liars. They're just hopeful. Okay, let's go to the next slide. And I will say too, the other thing is that you know, for folks who receive church welfare, for instance, mm -hmm. I had a, when I served as a bishop, I had a I had a segment of members who weren't exactly active, but whenever they were needing church welfare for a month or two or three, whatever mm -hmm. it was, they had to be regular attenders at church, yes. and so the data may even be lower than what we're saying because some people may go sort of out of obligation and not go yeah. because they really want to. Yeah. And it depends on your ward. Sometimes I had a bishop that really tracked us. Like he would call us in and say, I noticed you guys haven't been there very often, you know? And I mean, I would, I always had callings in primary, so I would miss sacrament meeting. I'd pop in at the end, kind of pretend I'd been there, you know, and then go do my calling. So a lot of people are in, but not of the, <laughs> the building, if you know what I mean, or is it the other way around? But the data was really interesting. Here's a very interesting graph. So Pope's data can demonstrate other aspects of religious attendance as well. So for most Christian groups at Easter and Christmas, as you see there, what happens? A huge spike, right? 
Those are called people who are CEO, Christmas and Easter only. Well, Mormons don't have that. And at first I thought, well, that's because they really don't have a Christmas or Easter program. <laughs> but then I realized, right. sorry, that's being facetious, um, but actually kind of true. Um, then I realized that really it's because everybody is there all the time. These other religi religions see this because that is the only time they're attending. They have a big influx. But Mormons are pretty steadily there at 15%. So as Pope says, it's a clear sign that most of the just under 2 million people in the pews on a given Sunday are regular attendees. So again, so interesting that cell phone data can show you this. And let's see what else we can learn from this. Um, another thing, okay, let me see if you guys can guess what this graph means. There's two times a year where the building goes dark. Do we know when that is? <laughs> Bishop's holiday. Exactly. We're talking about October conference and we're talking about April conference right there. You can see on the group on the graph that nobody is there on those two Sundays. So this is really accurate. It's almost scary how, how well they can track you to find out what you're doing. So as Pope says, things go dark in terms of church attendance in their ward um, chapel buildings because they are all at home in their pajamas watching conference. So that's kind of interesting. Let's see what else we can learn from this. Um, I thought this was really fascinating. One really distinctive aspect of LDS congregations was that they are the least economically diverse of all religious groups. And Pope, who did the study, he's an economist, so he was actually really surprised. He says, weekly LDS attendees were on average a little wealthier than people who attend infrequently, which is the reverse of the pattern for other religions. And I can see that. Um, these effects aren't super strong, but they're there, Pope said. Regular LDS church activity can be time consuming and it feels, feels like those that are able to get there weekly are the ones that don't have other things, like maybe a second job, <laughs> interrupting their lives in certain ways. And they are often financially more stable. And I see that for sure. I mean, in the area where I live in, in Utah County, the church really works well for people of a certain demographic. Does that make sense? Do you guys have any comments on that thought? Well, I think that this uh, statistic yields itself to the interpretation that the faithful are materially blessed by God mm -hmm. and do make mm -hmm. more money because they pay tithing. Yep, you could spin it that way, or you could also just say it really works for people of a certain demographic, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're all yeah. there, and maybe other people aren't as comfortable being there. A trad wife, right? It kind of fits right into that. Now, I was thinking too, Rebecca, I mean, if you remember, Leonard Arrington uh, made the comment that you had to be, he knew from the church working for it, that you had to be in the top 15% of tithe payers in the stake to be considered for the position of stake president. And we all sort of grasp that Mormonism sort of privileges the wealthy. They tend to, at the same activity level, get uh, better callings, such as stake president, for instance. And so I think that having more wealth and money allows you to feel better about yourself because the ward utilizes you, whereas in other religions, there may be more conversation about how the rich should give to the poor or more conversation that sort of adds shame to wealthy people uh, to do more with their money to do good in the world, whereas Mormonism sort of does have that prosperity gospel. And I would add that if you believe the prosperity gospel, and it is taught pretty much throughout the LDS church, it's in the scriptures as well, the Book of Mormon, wouldn't it make you feel kind of good about yourself if you're prosperous just because that means that god kind of likes you better than the people who aren't so prosperous 
Yeah, I would say 100%. And it is very hard to go to church in a scenario like that, where perhaps you're in a situation in your life, maybe there's been a layoff or something like that. I can remember a time where I was in a situation like that. And there was a gentleman that got up um, during testimony meeting, and he threw his arms out and he just kind of yelled the word abundance. He yelled it a few times. And he said, I'm so grateful for the abundance Lord, the Lord has given me. And I'm sitting there in a particular cycle in my life where I don't have abundance. And it certainly doesn't make you feel great. I will say that. It certainly doesn't make you feel like you want to go back the next Sunday. So yeah. I think there's a lot of factors at play here, but that's a very interesting statistic. Here's a really interesting one. So the study has a whole bunch of other findings, says Pope. Um, when they are in church, they stay longer than most religious groups do, 115 minutes to be precise. Well, that is absolutely not a surprise because you have a calling. And if you're not there, everybody knows you're not there. If you're at mass, you miss mass the next Sunday, most people are not going to be aware that you're not there. If you have a nursery full of 15 crying 18 months old and you don't show up, they are going to call you and say, where are you? Um, they, they take statistics at church. They count your attendance. And I was reading a really interesting post on Reddit today about the idea of attendance. It was somebody who had been in therapy after leaving Mormonism. And the therapist was stunned to find out that they were tracked in that way, sort of monitored with attendance, that your church worship should be really private. It should be something that it is in no way tied to anything else, anything that's punitive, anything being sent to the bishop. And I guess for the rest of the world, that is kind of surprising. But to Mormons, it's part of it. You can be called in and they can say, you aren't attending as often as you should. So I thought that was really an interesting concept. Um, the other thing. <laughs> yeah, this last paragraph made me wonder if they had counted Tim Ballard and his son. Yeah, well, yeah. that could be. Yeah, yeah. This is really fascinating. So it says as well. Um, well, okay, going back just a second. Yes, we spend twice as much time in church as Catholics. So there you go. That's how devout Mormons are. In your um, and then as well. What? <laughs> In your face, Catholics. That's right. Take that. But again, we're kind of coerced and held accountable to be there in our time. Um, so again, Mormons had the lowest rate of going to strip clubs and liquor stores. Okay. Like you said, perhaps they didn't count Tim Ballard and his son. And then this was really interesting. They were about average in going to fitness clubs. I can see that. And casinos. So that's kind of unusual. They can really track you. So basically they ping your data right there in the building and then they see where else you go. And then they can kind of, you know, come up with the demographic information on that. So fitness clubs and casinos. I get Mormons the fitness clubs, but casinos? I know, casinos. I didn't understand that either. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. So yeah. Mormons might secretly be going to casinos a lot more than you would think. I think so. Or maybe hmm. it's somebody that sat in the pews when somebody held their arms out and said, abundance didn't feel very abundant, drove to the casino, hoping to improve their situation. It could be yeah. that. I don't know. I, I recommend the craps games. My bottom line from this entire article, Rebecca, is not only does Mormonism make liars of us all, but also when you're not using your phone, turn it off. <laughs> that is it. And, and that actually leads us to the last slide, which is limitations of the study, because that's accurate. Um, Pope was quick to discuss the potential limitations of using cell phone data. What happens when someone doesn't take their cell phone to church? Well, that's not going to happen, because what else are you going to do during sacrament meeting? You've got to have your cell phone. Pioneer um, 47. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is it still Pioneer 1847 or Pioneer 47? It was just 47, I think. I Mr. never used it, but everybody knew what it was. So they probably changed it so that. Oh, yeah. You know, no, people can't great. be enjoying church as much anymore. <laughs> well, I know they do go through waves where they say, everybody 
put your phones away, turn your phone off. And then they say, no, everybody get on social media and post a picture of yourself at church. So you can't have it both ways. Anyway, also the question of how do you measure the movement of small children who don't own a phone? Again, I will say that most small children own a phone. <laughs> that is just how it is. Um, but despite the limitations, it is exciting to be able to study religious behavior using data beyond just surveys. So this will be coming out, I believe, in an article or a paper or something with further detail. Um, but I did podcast about this on Mormonish with um, Simon Sutherton, who had a lot to say about this. So we do have an episode about that. But it is really interesting that in this case, you can't lie. Your cell phone is turning your, you in. You are only going to your meetings weekly, 15% of you. So take that for what it may be. It's interesting that Mormonism has such a hold, even on the people who aren't going to church anymore, that they will lie to an anonymous person in order to make it sound like they are. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, but Mormonism has been teaching us to lie ever since we were little kids. You know, I mean, uh, you can take a young man, for instance, again, serving as a bishop in a ward. We had uh, one young man who came in to see me as the bishop who wanted to confess that he was doing something he shouldn't have. I knew having been a convert to the church and knowing some of the data out there that every young man was pretty much doing what this kid came in to say, but he was the good kid. All the rest of them were just simply not telling it. They were simply being dishonest because Mormonism has, has so much shame waiting on the other side of that door. And life is just better if you pretend to be a good Mormon better than you actually are. You know, that's really funny because it just occurs to me now that's such a structure, and indeed, that is the structure, right? It's the honest ones who get into trouble with the impact that it's the dishonest ones who rise to leadership positions. Yeah, that certainly was true for a lot of my priesthood leaders. So, all right. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca, for, for the data on that. And uh, it does scare me a little bit that they were able to so yeah. easily gather what all of us are doing and where we're going. Yeah. Um, so I'm with RFM. Maybe we should turn our phones off a little more often. <laughs> I'm going to go turn mine off right now. Yeah, let's you should. All right. And then lastly, I just wanted to note a story in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, the title of the story is Why It Can Be So Hard to Hold LDS Men Accountable for Abuse. Uh, the quote there at the top, I want my father to know, says a survivor of alleged abuse, that forgiveness is no longer synonymous with enabling him. I want to read a couple of quotes here from the article and then get to get the opinion from both of you. Uh, the first one, I've heard from over a half, I'm sorry, I've heard from over half a dozen women now who have, uh, who have, I'm sorry, now who have almost my exact same story and they were LDS. They were abused by their father and then church leaders knew about it and they kept it within the church. And the family was discouraged from, or at least not encouraged to seek legal justice and it led to more abuse. And, and we're seeing that just in some of the stories that have come out over the last few weeks. Uh, one that you've covered recently, RFM, and I think we'll do some more coverage on here soon. Uh, next quote, it's not enough to excommunicate, but to make sure that they cannot perpetrate the terms, sorry, yeah, perpetrate the terms beyond the church community. Uh, so that means helping people in legal processes, not discouraging them from participating in them. Um, and so in other words, when you excommunicate people and it's sort of secretive, then nobody gets held accountable. And if you really want uh, people to own up and be accountable and to repent and to, to, to make things right, then uh, you should help people in the legal process, not discourage them from participating in them. 
Uh, part of the danger in asking people to forgive outside of the proper context is that is often part of what is used in a grooming process. That was my case, said the person in the article. My father would say, oh, I'm so sorry. You should forgive me. And so that was a time where forgiveness was used to perpetuate abuse. And then lastly, certainly in the case of hierarchical institution, the more power you have over other people, the more accountability you have to them. And I thought that was interesting as well. Um, I just, I, I guess my question for the two of you, any thoughts uh, that come to mind in regards to the sort of spaces in Mormonism, the sort of things that go on in Mormonism that really do protect males, uh, that take away them needing to be accountable, sort of uh, hides their sins away, and calls on the victims to be silent. Your thoughts on how the church has mechanisms that do these things? Well, I can go first just because um, I don't have an anecdote that goes along with this right off the tip of my tongue, but I certainly am familiar with the passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that frequently gets brought out in situations like that. That a straightforward understanding of what it says is if there's a person who sins against another person, and the victim then does not forgive the offender, then the greater sin is upon the victim. You've both yeah. heard that, right? Yeah. Which means no matter how bad, I mean, if this guy molests you and he's your dad or some other member of the family and you don't forgive him, then your sin is greater than what he did to you. That's the straightforward application of it. Yeah, that seems extreme, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And I think there's I think there's a hierarchy in place to, I mean, it's very informal, but it's there to protect the priesthood holder, protect the head of the family, because everything will disintegrate if that person, you know, is not who you need them to be, or if they've committed, you know, some kind of a crime. There's this idea, well, you know, let's just just forgive. Let's just forget. They've got a family. I mean, we've seen that over and over, right? But I feel like a lot of people, okay, so why, why don't people often go to law enforcement if they've committed a crime? Why do they go to their bishop? Or why do their family have them go to the bishop? It's almost like it's a sense of instant forgiveness and you don't ever really have to pay the real price. I mean, otherwise, everybody would just go to law enforcement. They would be encouraged to go to law enforcement. Instead, you go through this middleman, the bishop, who's going to have this more religious perspective, of course, and he's going to encourage forgiveness. We all know he's going to call the hotline, and we all know where that goes. But why go there first? It's because it's kind of a soft landing, if that makes sense. But I think the harm of being asked and expected to forgive before you're ready, um, I don't think we can even talk about how how you know detrimental that can be to a person. And people are ready at different times. Some people can say, you know, all right, I accept what happened, but it's going to take me years to forgive you, and that should be okay. But like RFM, you just said, it's not okay. Now it's on you if you're not the one forgiving. And I think you get that kind of pushback from other people. Why can't you forgive? You know, and no understand. No one understands where you are personally. So I think it's a big issue. I think it's pervasive. Yeah, and while you were talking, I looked up the reference. It's Doctrine and Covenants, section sixty-four, verse nine. The Lord has taught. I'm sorry, that's that's not the quote from the Doctrine and Covenants. It's ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I had four thoughts as I was thinking about this article. First is that in this church, you're taught to trust the priesthood, whether it's the local leadership, whether it's the uh, other men in the ward, whether it's the general leadership, uh, the prophet or the quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency, you're taught to trust the priesthood as a representative of God. That's going to lead to people compromising what they should have held as normal boundaries, and they are going to open up to essentially allowing more space for unsafe boundaries, right? So the idea that these men from the local level all the way to the top speak for God, they represent God to the rest of us, uh, is creates just by the very nature of it an unsafe uh, space for, for unhealthy boundaries. Uh, number two, uh, don't criticize leaders, right? Don't criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. That is a uh, statement that tells all of us, it signals to all of us that no matter what church leaders do, local on up, our job is to keep our mouth shut and keep their sins hidden. Number three, um, Neil Anderson, give Brother Joseph a break. That quote, the church has never come forward ever and said, you know what, we'd like to give the benefit of the doubt to Joseph Smith. We'd like to, there's a lot of stuff in the history that doesn't look good, but it sure looks like he has deeply unhealthy behaviors towards young girls and to uh, the wives of other men, for sure, and other women in the community. The fact that the church won't even go there uh, signals to all of us as members that when there are indiscretions within church context, our job is to protect the good name of the church at all cost. Number four, all of the church cover-ups that have happened, all of the sex abuse cases, all of the not reporting, all of the instances where uh, the Hinsey case that's been going on recently, when the church covers up things, in order to not have it feel embarrassment or shame to the general public or to its membership, inevitably, when you cover up your own sins, you'll be forced to cover up the sins of others in order to cover up yours. And hence, that attitude, I also think, leads to uh, additional protection of abusers. You know, as you're saying that, it occurs to me that I've often talked about or considered the problem of perfectionism among the members of the church and how detrimental that is to the psyche to try and be something that you can't possibly be to fail over and over again to measure up and how that makes people feel as worthless and less than i think maybe what we're talking about here and what you're talking about bill is the problems of perfectionism as applied to an institution because i think that's what leads to all of these horrible outcomes is that the members of the church as directed by the leaders of the church want the church to be perfect they want it to appear perfect to the outside world and therefore anything can happen but we're gonna hide it we're gonna put it under the rug so that we can continue to portray ourselves as a perfect church yeah yeah i, yeah, I, I often Oh, no, go ahead, Rebecca. I was going to th think about how they do not offer apologies, right? Apologies, part of the forgiveness. They don't want forgiveness, I get, or, or even to be part of that process. 
where you might apologize. And I'm talking about the church, you know, as a whole, they've come out and said, we do not apologize, right? That's part of the forgiveness process. You know, there might be some healing if there could be some back and forth and forgiveness and apology. And I see that that trickles down exactly what you were talking about, Bill. And when you don't apologize and when you're not accountable to your past mm -hmm. mistakes, inevitably you will repeat history. You will make, you will have the same safe spaces for the same kinds of mistakes to happen over and over and over again. Can I trace this back to my new theory? which is you can't apologize if you haven't done something wrong. And you can't do anything wrong if your church is perfect and you're a leader in that church. So mm -hmm. maybe it all, maybe all these roads do go back to Rome. Rome being that the institution of the church is perfect and we're gonna portray it as perfect. And therefore we will hide everything and anything to keep up that illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the church always is taking steps to sort of be better, but those steps are always done in a way that prevents, it keeps it from having to be accountable to what's happened behind it. And hence, there's always this sort of confusion. And again, I don't want to get into kind of that word being used over and over again in the past weeks of Mormonism, but there is this sort of cognitive dissonance that things, the way they are today, isn't the way they were, but we don't exactly know how we got here. And, and when you do it that way, the left hand never knows what the right hand is doing. Yeah. What if I were to suggest that the church as an institution is suffering from cognitive dissonance? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I appreciate uh, the thoughts that each of you shared on that. I want to give both of you a moment to share uh, where folks can find your work and anything that you've got uh, coming up that you want the, the audience to be aware uh, of is on the radar. Rebecca, what's cooking? Oh, let me think. All right. Well, Mormonish podcast, of course, we always put out episodes on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. live. And then on Fridays at four, our episode coming up tomorrow is about the history of masturbation in the LDS church and all the pamphlets and talks. And I know you can't help but laugh. It's going to be really good. <laughs> and the AI and images triggering. that you've created. Yes. I tried to make a lot of AI images for our slide presentation, and most of them wouldn't generate because of community, um, you know, content or whatever, standards. you know, standards. Yes. Community standards. But I did my best. It's going to be really interesting. And we are on that program with the amazing cultural hall. So, you know, it's going to be entertaining. So that's what we have going on. It's so amazing to me that you've got a pamphlet, which was allegedly written by Marky e. Peterson. Mm hmm for the missionaries and for the young men to keep them from, you know, spanking the monkey. And you go and you try and make AI scenes for each of these scenarios described by an apostle of the Lord. And it refuses to do it because it violates community standards. It does. And I do have to make a little announcement. And this is kind of a surprise for you, RFM. So about a year ago, RFM and I wrote a song together um, about that pamphlet by Marky e. Peterson. Do you remember working on that together? Uh, yes, yes. I know. Well, I know you thought that song was dead, but that song is not dead. I turned it over to the amazing cultural hall and very soon you're going to see the live product. So it's kind of a little surprise for you. It's a great song and we're probably going to debut it tomorrow night. So Stay well, great. I'll have to watch. Hope everyone else does. Me, I'm doing Mormonism Live on Wednesday nights with a fantastic co-host. I forget his name right now, but he's really good. You got to watch. 
and also doing uh, Mormon Sunday School on a weekly basis. Bill Real is doing the investigator's manual, comparing an old manual with the current manual, seeing what the changes are, what what's different, what they're not telling you back then, and continue to not be telling you today. And what I'm doing is the uh, the Come Follow Me manual. So we are up to 2 Nephi 6 through 10. That's chapter 6 through 10. We did that this past weekend. I'm trying to stay a week ahead of the reading assignment so people do have a resource where they can go to and learn stuff about the Sunday school lesson that they're never going to hear about in regular Sunday school. And of course, there's brush up your Shakespeare. We're going through Hamlet. We've gone through the first act. We're now into act two, scene two, and we're having a great time. Lots of great response from that. And those are not uh, broadcast like this is like live or anything. It's just sort of released like a regular podcast, if that makes sense. There's no live chat. It's not premiered. It's not live. It's just released when it's ready. And I've been doing those pretty much on a weekly basis as well, covering one scene per week. And in regards to your Mormon Sunday School, you just released an episode, The Monster in the Book of Mormon. And that may sound intriguing. People may not quite go, what does that mean? Well, you'd have to turn in, tune into Mormon Sunday School the Come Follow Me Manual, RFM's most recent episode, The Monster in the Book of Mormon. Uh, you can check out Rebecca Biblioteca in the Mormonish podcast at mormonishpodcast.org. You can check out Mormon Sunday School at mormonsundayschool.com, radiofreemormon.org, as well as Rebecca uh, on the Mormonish YouTube channel and RFM and myself on the Mormon Discussion YouTube channel. Folks, we really enjoyed uh, putting this news program together for you. And we'll see you next Monday at 6 p.m. We'll see what kind of things Mormonism does over the next uh, seven days. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, everyone.